querido. Christianity is like a multifaceted jewel. The designs of Christianity are so varied that it must be viewed from every direction if you're going to truly see the beauty and the splendor of Christianity. If someone said, well, define Christianity, to offer a full and complete definition of Christianity is not nearly as easy as you might think it would be. Christianity, you see, is the perfect plan of redemption for man's soul. It's God's own arrangement of reconciling the world unto Himself. It is designed to subdue a man's wild and reckless spirit and to purge mankind of his carnal nature. The purpose of Christianity is to bring the will of man and the disposition of man into harmony with the will of God and the disposition of God. All of these things and much, much more is involved in the system of grace that God has designed and provided for us. Now think about this. Think about the disastrous results that would take place if man were arbitrarily and suddenly transplanted to that home of the saints in heaven while man is still in his fallen and carnal state. Mankind would be unfit for that kind of association. And it would result in misery and wretchedness. And that kind of arbitrary dealing with the human family would be most unkind. God is not going to thrust a man or a woman into a state that they do not want. And God is not going to place a man or a woman into a position of a place where they are unprepared. We serve our apprenticeship here below and finish our preparation to be fit subjects and then it's when we will be permitted to pass through the gates to the city. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus there deals with the motives. And Jesus deals with the dispositions and the attitudes that should characterize us. I want you to go back to that day in the first century with me by an eye of faith this morning. And I want you to picture yourself being among that multitude of people that Jesus was preaching to that day. I want you to imagine the audience that Jesus faced there on the mountainside. He had His close friends, His special friends. Peter and Andrew and James and John, those made up that inner circle there around Jesus. And beyond His special friends there closest to Him, there, was a, there were acres and acres of human faces. It's a vast throng of humanity that is assembled there to listen to this young teacher. 
It's a cross-section of people. There that day, listening to Jesus are those who are successful and those who are failures. There are those that have won and those that have been beaten. The rich and the poor are there. The well-read and the illiterate are there. And as Jesus preaches to that multitude, Jesus is preaching to a world in miniature. And looking into their faces, Jesus is able to see beyond their faces. Jesus is able to look deep into their hearts. And Jesus sees that all of them are seeking the same thing. They're all searching for a better life. And so that's what Jesus does. He tells them about the better life. He offers them a rule by which they are to measure themselves. And adhering to the rule that Jesus gives that day, we're able to set aside the weaknesses of humanity. And when we can set aside the weaknesses of humanity, it's then that we can emerge as worthy citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus lays down a very important principle in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. He tells His hearers that day that their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And He's quite plain with it. He says, if it doesn't, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And over and over and over in that sermon that day, Jesus said it, we can read it, you have heard it has been said, but I say unto you. The law, you see, as administered by the rabbis of Jesus' day, was cognizant only of blatant acts. But Jesus' teaching that day, it goes beyond the blatant acts. And Jesus regulates the motive, the heart, the attitude that's behind those blatant acts. The the teachings of Jesus not only sees the deed, but folks, it probes for the will and it probes for the disposition And it probes for the heart that prompts that deed. The law forbids one person to kill another. Jesus added the sin of being angry without cause. Personal revenge was forbidden. Jesus made resistance to evil equally sinful. 
Adultery had always been prohibited. Jesus condemns the look of lust that precedes it. He talks about the characteristics of the children of God. In chapter 5 and verse 38, Jesus talks about the attitude that should govern us if we have been smitten on the cheek. He's trying to inform us what our attitude should be toward grievous and aggravated insult. He says, you've heard that it has been said that if a man shall smite thee on one cheek, he said, I have heard that, or I say unto you, if a man smite you on one cheek, you turn to him the other also. You see, to be slapped with the hand. To just be slapped like that. Hurt. That's more insulting than to be stricken with the fist. And what Jesus contemplates here is adding insult to injury. And He says, we're simply to turn the other cheek. And we're to suffer the indignity without retaliation. Anybody ever found that hard to do? People often jest about this commandment. I remember an old story about a truck driver that had recently been converted to Christianity. And he pulled his truck up to a truck stop in a small town one day and parked his truck and went in. Ordered his lunch. He was hungry. He ordered him a steak dinner with a baked potato and a cup of coffee. And just about the time that they brought him his meal that he had ordered, a motorcycle gang came in. And the leader of that motorcycle gang hauled off and slapped him upside the head and grabbed his steak and started eating it. The truck driver said, well, the Bible says if a man smites you on one cheek, turn him the other one. One of those other motorcycle toughs slapped him on the other side of the face, grabbed his potato and started eating that. He said, well, I'm a new Christian. The Bible doesn't tell me what to do after that. I've got to use my own judgment. So he got up and paid his bill and left. One of the, the leader of that motorcycle gang said, well, I'll tell you one thing. That truck driver wasn't much of a man. Waitress looks out the window and said, he's not much of a truck driver either. He backed over 14 motorcycles driving out of the parking lot. Well, now that's the way we joke about that commandment. But Jesus said we are to suffer injury and insult without retaliation. You know, Peter one time thought he was being very magnanimous. He said, Lord, am I supposed to forgive my brother up to seven times? And I can see Jesus just kind of chuckles. And, no, Peter, 
until seven times seventy. That, folks, is to forgive until infinity. That's what Jesus came telling us. And this passage here forbids retaliation of any kind whatsoever. Jesus talks about being sued at the law. He said, if any man will soothe at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. That cloak that Jesus talks about, that was the outer garment. It was used by the poorer classes during the day and it protected their body against the chilling blasts of winter during the day. And they used that same covering at night while sleeping. The illustration Jesus gives is that we have to be willing to part with more than is asked of us. And then in verse 41, he said, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. You see, the Roman government had adapted a policy that had originated with the Persians. And it was a policy of forcing private citizens into governmental service against their will. A government citizen might need transportation to the next community over. A citizen would be compelled against his will to provide that transportation. It involved interference with his personal affairs. Well, to the average Jew, this was an extremely distasteful arrangement. It was compulsory. And no one likes to do what somebody makes them, forces them to do. But Jesus said, if anyone forces you to go a mile with him, Jesus said, do more. He said, go two miles with him. What do you mean, Lord? I mean, be willing to do twice as much as is demanded of you. You see, what Jesus is outlining there on the mountainside that day is the religion of the second mile. There are some things an individual has to do if that individual is going to live in a state of society. You must work or starve. You must care for your family or suffer punishment. You must live civilly or be removed from society. A person has to work or... They run the risk of losing their job. I don't know of anyone who is deserving of commendation, who is satisfied to do the bare minimum. I remember when I was in college, and I've told you this before, when I was in college, the very first day of class, I would get the syllabus from the professor. And I would look at that syllabus and I would see exactly what the bare minimum was that I had to do to pass that course. 
And folks, I've got the grades on my transcript to prove it. That I did just what I had to do to get my three semester hours or my four semester hours or my one semester hour. The bare minimum. I never got any awards, by the way. I did make the dean's list a couple of times, but it was not the list of the better students. I was just on the dean's list. No one ever wins employee of the year who is satisfied to do the bare minimum that's required. And what would you think about a man that measured what he'd spend on his family, calculated it down to the last penny, to provide just the bare minimum necessary to sustain life and existence. And yet, sometimes that's what we do with the Lord. Just like I sat down with that syllabus to figure out what the bare minimum was I had to pass algebra, We sit down with the Word of God. What's the bare minimum I've got to do, Lord, to go to heaven when I die? What's the bare minimum I've got to do to be saved? And nothing more. Here's what Jesus said. It's not what I'm saying. It's what Jesus said. He taught us that when we do what we ought to do, we're still unprofitable servants. When we've done the bare minimum, and we've done the bare minimum and nothing else, Jesus taught us that we're still unprofitable. Here's how it reads in the King James translation, Luke 17, verse 10. Jesus said, when you've done all those things that are commanded of you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Here it is in Philip's translation. When you've done everything you're told to do, you can say we're not much good as servants. For we've only done what we ought to do. And that principle's got so many practical applications. We can apply that principle to our faithfulness in attending the services of the church. We can apply that principle to the amount of financial support we give to the church. We can apply that principle to, to what we do as far as bringing others to the family of God, inviting others to come to church with us. We can apply that principle to how we care for those that are less fortunate than we are, and on and on and on. But regardless of what aspect of our service to God we apply that to, the first mile is the mile of compulsion. The religion of grace 
goes beyond compulsion. The religion of grace does not say, what must I do? The religion of grace does not say, what's the bare minimum I can do? The religion of grace says, what is there for me to do? Jesus is pleading for the second mile. The first mile says, I ought. The second says, I shall. The first says, what must I do? The other says, what may I do? You see, folks, we have an imperfect conception of sin. All of us are aware that, as John would say in 1 John 3 and verse 4, that sin is transgression of the law. But that just about exhausts our concept of sin. John also said in 1 John 5, 17, all unrighteousness is sin. Unrighteousness is a failure to keep God's commandments. Unrighteousness is a failure to live God's kind of life. We must understand that those passages define sin positively and they define sin negatively. Sin is doing what's wrong. Sin is also failing to do what's right. And what's happened to us over the years is that this imperfect conception of sin has lulled folks into a false sense of security. We've been led to believe that we're good simply because we're not bad. We've developed a view that harmlessness is holiness. And we've accepted a fallacious view that goodness is a negative quality that exists in the absence of badness. Remember the Pharisee in Luke 18? He was thankful to God he wasn't like other men. And the things some folks would not do would fill a large book. But have you ever tried to add a column of zeros? The philosophy that goodness is a negative quality and only a negative quality of what I won't do is the most insidious threat to the future of the Lord's church. God's laws divide themselves into two categories. There are the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. A person that steals violates God's law person that fails to do good also violates God's law. If you go back and look at the judgment parables, every one of the judgment parables 
reveals the punishment was for what someone failed to do that was right rather than for what somebody did that was wrong. Remember the one talent man? Jesus said he was wicked. And Jesus uses that word obviously in a way that's foreign to our conception. When you think of a wicked person, what do you think about? We all think of somebody that does bad things. Measured by the standard many people have, the one talent man's an admirable character because he didn't do anything bad. And if fitness for eternal bliss in heaven is measured by what a person doesn't do, you can make an excellent case for this man. If fitness for eternal bliss is determined by what one does not do, I can make an excellent case for my kitty cat. This man wasn't wasteful. He didn't embezzle the money that was committed to him. He wasn't dishonest. He wasn't a drunkard. So far as we know, he was not immoral. And the list could be extended almost indefinitely. But Jesus said he was wicked. Not because he didn't do anything, because he, not because of the fact that he did anything wrong. That's not why Jesus said he was wicked. It was because he didn't do what was right. And I have an idea this man was insulted by what Jesus said to him. Because he likely considered himself a brilliant example of a harmless man. Because he approached the master and with an air of self-satisfaction said, Here, take that to design. Or you go over to Luke 16 and the case of the rich man shows us in awful detail the sinfulness of a useless life. The rich man that tradition tells us was named Dives, as far as we know, was a good man, as the world would measure it. He wronged neither God nor man. There's no evidence that he was a thief or a murderer or a liar. There's no evidence he took from any man his money or from any woman or virtue. He didn't have to steal for his bread. Not only did he not engage in active wrongdoing, he didn't, there's no indication that he made others do so. He did not forbid the servants to shake out the dainties off of his table for the beggar. But he saw the rich, wretched beggar at his gate. He didn't kick him and he didn't order the servants to beat him and remove him or have the law come and arrest him. So what did that rich man do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He had the opportunity to do good. And he failed. I want to live with Jesus. Someday... The sun is going to come over the eastern hills and it's going to warm this earth with its mellow light. And I'm not going to be here. You won't either. It's going to be early in the morning and the birds are going to be singing in the treetops. And I'm not going to be hearing their melodious tunes and you won't either. When that day comes, 
The material things of this life won't matter. What will matter is whether or not we've lived in such a way to perpetuate ourselves in the memory of God. The psalmist would pray in Psalms 90 and verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days, to apply our hearts to wisdom. Jesus tells us to travel the second mile. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing. There's a